and welcome to our final episode of Lost in Science for the year, where we're bringing science to you on 3CR. I'm Kat, and I'm joined, as always, by Stu and Chris. How are you both going? Fantastic. Great. Yeah. Yes. Brilliant. Excited for the final show of the year. It's been a long year, and I feel like we, um, we've made it. Woohoo. It has been a long year and I've I've uh, found myself circling back to where the year started. So I'm going to be um, talking a little bit about AI and hey look we're still here. The the AI yeah. apocalypse has not happened. We're still doing our jobs and it seems a bit unfair. I was hoping, you know, we'd all be unemployed and trying to figure out what to do with our time. But unfortunately, no, we're still here, still slugging away at our jobs. And uh, But I'm going to talk a little bit about the impact of AI over the last year and um, not just on jobs, but on other things like the environment. Brilliant. Yeah. And Chris, I believe you're going to quiz Stu and I. Yes. Look, it's, um, it is the end of the year. It's our last show. And you know, we often do a bit of a retrospective of the, the year that's been. And I thought, what better way to do that than to check and see whether you've been listening. And by you, I mean specifically you and <laughs> Stu. Uh, How much have we actually taken in? <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm, I'm not going to be asking about questions that you've covered because I'm hoping that you'd be able to remember those ones. But uh, yeah, look, we'll see how we go. It should be, um, it should be interesting. And it's been, it's been good for me to go over everything we talked about and uh, yeah, a little stroll down memory lane, I guess. Wonderful. Look forward to it. Well, on with the show. The first story I did this year was about um, ChatGPT, which I'd just been playing with early in uh, in the year, um, and how it was a, a huge leap forward in computing capability in sort of uh, machine learning, and you know, sort of trying to work out what sort of long term impacts uh, it would have on all sorts of areas of our lives. Now, obviously, working in education, my focus was on how the educators of the world might be able to adjust to students being able to generate new answers to assignment questions and even essays um, that were not technically plagiarism. And I have had this discussion with with our academic uh, quality people and all sorts of other people. Um, but, you know, you can't, the easy way to detect plagiarism is you do a search and you can find where it was pinched from, but these are generated things, so it's not easy to find. So this was already a worry for artists uh, even earlier in this year. So things like Mid Journey and other um, art generative AIs 
um, the artists were already getting their work stolen because those AIs, or those AI models had used millions of images taken from the internet without consent or permission. So artists were just saying, well, you basically just ripped off my work and said it was new. Um, so some artists have tried to fight back over the this year by posting terrible content for the machines to learn from, which, um, you know, sort of might be a bit of an own goal in some ways, but um, might also have an effect on whether people choose to use AI work in their, you know, rather than use artists' work. Have we also seen, uh, I mean, that's obviously with the image writer stuff, but we've seen people trying to control access to text-based information as well, like putting up, say, anti-AI firewalls on their websites and things to stop it being absorbed by uh, the bots? Yeah, it's it's really tricky, though, because you've only got to copy it once and they can feed it into their machine. It's, it's you know, it's, I guess the same thing applies to art as well. There's no real way to stop it reaping this information, um, which is part of the problem. It's It's, you know, we've built this amazing information sharing machine and it's difficult to control who shares what with whom. Um, there are potentially legal considerations. Some courts have ruled uh, that AI-generated material is not able to be copyright protected. So the value of using it might not be worth the cost of production. If someone wants to use stuff and they can't copyright it, what's the point in producing it in the first place? Um, but the concerns about intellectual property and protection of human producers of content and artwork are not the only things that have people worried. Um, and they're not small problems, and there are no simple solutions for stopping people dishonestly using AI for their own gain. But um, so ChatGPT was got the ball rolling in terms of AI and, and what sort of caught my attention. I mean, I'd seen mid-journey, things like that. Um, but uh, a lot of uh, ChatGPT has been incorporated into Microsoft products, for example, including their search engine. Microsoft also put around 10 billion US dollars into OpenAI, which is the parent company of ChatGPT. And that might seem like a lot of money. Um, and they're not the only investors, so there is a lot of money flowing towards OpenAI as a company. But the running costs of the ChatGPT language model are pretty astounding. It costs about seven hundred thousand US dollars a day to run, which is over a million Australian dollars a day, um, and that might get cheaper over time. Um, but it takes into account the cost of hardware, capital expenses, running costs, salaries for the teams of code crunches that it must take to keep that uh, megabot running all the time, um, and. Among those running costs, obviously, are electricity. So that sort of whopping amount of computing power needs a lot of electrical current to keep it running uh, for the processes and for the huge amount of data storage required to make it function. Without the data storage, it's got nothing to say. So it stores a huge amount of data. It's the fact that it can access it so quickly that makes it be able to generate answers so quickly. So... Uh, just reading up about it, just training a language learning model like ChatGPT can use more electricity than it's required to run 120 homes for an entire year. And that's US homes, 
which mm. use a lot more electricity than the global average. So if you averaged it globally, it'd be way more than 120. Um, now, electricity in most places is produced by pretty generally filthy carbon-producing sources. Uh, and in terms of carbon emissions, that is around 284 metric tonnes of carbon dioxide just for the training phase, which, to put it in perspective, is about five times the emissions of a car, an average-sized car, but including manufacturing and fuel use for the lifetime of the car. So just to train a, a language model like ChatGBT is uh, five, five cars for the entire lifetime of the car, including production and fuel use, let's say 15 years, we'll cap it at 15 years. That's a lot of training. Uh, that's so when, a lot of emissions. When you say train it, is that like a one-off thing though? Is that like, it's like if it's trained now, is that like, because five cars for the whole world using this product actually doesn't sound like that a lot, although maybe it means that cars are pretty bad. But it, like, it does it does mean cars are pretty bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, ChatGPT is one model. Every time there's a new model, they've already put out another two models after the one that they launched late last year. Um, and it's not the only model. There's lots of people trying to do the same thing. So this is not, you know, it's not, yeah, it is only, you know, five cars times 15 years per model, but surely the models are going to become more and more uh, prevalent. It's not, there's nothing stopping anyone producing them anyway. Um, now, you might also think, oh, well, what's the, you know, that that is, as you say, a one-off uh, one event, the training. Um, but every time they put out a new model, they have to retrain it from scratch. They can't, they can't build on what they've done. So there is that. Now, on, on the user end of things, a single chat GPT query can generate 100 times the carbon emissions of a standard Google search. So you, just every time you put a question into chat GPT, that's 100 times more carbon emissions than writing the same question into Google. Um, and it's partly because you've got to do some work. You've got to figure out which one's you know, useful and all that stuff, and, the, and the, the learning model does that for you. But many search engines are already incorporating the AI tools into the search engine, so you might be using it without thinking you're using it. So when I say standard Google search, I mean kind of old-fashioned Google search, really, oh, yeah. is what I'm saying. Um, so MIT came up with that sort of figure, and they've built a calculator for working out how much each machine learning tool generates in a carbon emissions um, based on processor specs and hours worked, if anyone wants to actually try and offset their AI carbon footprint, who knows what the uptake on that will be, probably not as much as uh, ChatGPT's uptake. But interestingly, electricity is not the only thing AI suck up, they also get very thirsty, um, which might be surprising, water and computers don't generally mix, um, although it might be a good way to quickly stop an AI uprising if we came to that. Uh, but, of course, computers do get very hot. And in large-scale processing facilities and even in data storage, water cooling is very commonly used and water use is still quite surprisingly high. Why they don't recycle it, I don't really understand. Water is a great um, thermal sink, but you can also cool it down again and surely reuse it, but they don't, apparently. Um, so ChatGPT uses about half a litre of water for every 50 queries as a conservative estimate. So 
with ChatGPT receiving over 10 million queries a day, that's over 100,000 litres a day of drinkable water just for cooling and just for one model. So every other AI is probably using similar amounts. And just in case you're wondering, I think that's about 2,500 Olympic swimming pools because I know Chris always likes to know how many swimming pools that adds up to. Um, now, you know, this is, this is a huge thing. The human costs of AI are still being fiercely debated. There's no end in sight for the capabilities as the models achieve more with each passing month. Um, but the environmental impacts of AI and so-called cloud computing already surpass the entire aviation industry globally in terms of emissions um, by quite a factor. If you want to search those figures, uh, feel free. I feel like I've been throwing figures out all over the place. So if you want to look that up, but it, yeah, it's bigger than aviation already and it's still growing. Um, and it may be that AI and machine learning can help solve some environmental problems, but currently they're just a contributing factor. And look, I'll be honest, I think my measure of how good intelligence is is how funny it is. And so far, they can't write good jokes. Um, I asked asked ChatGPT to write a joke about AI being bad for the environment. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, sure. Uh, All right. Why did the AI start an environmental podcast? Because it wanted to spread awareness about climate change and prove that not all algorithms are cold-hearted. Yeah, not not funny in the slightest. I, I'm not sure I get it. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get it. It's just a sentence. It's a statement, not a joke. So look... Um, the rest of us might be worried, but uh, at the end of the day, I think comedians' jobs are well and truly safe for the foreseeable future. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we compute... Well, don't laugh. That's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience compare it directly with observation to see if it if it works if it disagrees with experiment it's wrong in that simple statement is the key to science it doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guest is it doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guest or what his name is if it disagrees with experiment it's wrong that's all there is to it
Okay, yes, you listen to Lost in Science, our final episode for 2023, and what a year it's been. Um, I don't know how much of it the two of you can remember, Kat and Stu. Has it been a bit of a blur? It sort of just whizzed by. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it seems to have gone very quickly. I, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I could blame, you know, global pandemics, but now it's just me. look it is a bit like that but look maybe when we go over some of the the stories we've covered this year maybe you'll feel a bit better about about um yeah all that's happened they give you some perspective on actually it has been quite a long year um but yeah i'm going to get back and ask you some questions about stories mostly that claire and i have covered in the last um 12 months so i thought i'd kick off with something way back at the start of the year back in march uh claire entertained us with a story that i think is similar to what you're talking about the environmental impact of things Stu. but she mm. covered a story about uh animal proteins um and which is best environmentally so the question for you as answered by claire on the show was which is better environmentally chicken or farmed atlantic salmon Ooh. see my i was just like without a multiple choice going insect but that's well, not an option here. <laughs> that was that was I think yeah, mealworms were kind of high up there on the thing. And I think mealworms are an insect larvae, aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this was a bit, uh, based on a study from Griffith University mm. uh that compared yeah, salmon to chicken specifically. And it was it was based on what's commonly eaten as well. There's not too many people going out for mealworm burgers so far. <laughs> that's true. Um <laughs> it, Gotta it change did, that. It did turn out to be salmon, didn't it? I, I would lock in. Oh, I, I was about to lock in salmon, but now I'm looking at uh, your face. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know how to score this. If you both got it wrong, then oh, no. no one gets a point because it actually was chicken. Turned out to be okay. better than Atlantic salmon. And this is when you add in all the environmental impacts, including, yeah, uh, emissions required, that sort of thing. But, yeah, overall environmental impact. Um, yeah, salmon was worse, I'm afraid. Sorry to let you know. Mm. All right, well... we'll We'll see if we can do do any better than that. Um, let me see. Let me see some other good stories. Okay, back in May, we go back to another Claire story. Um, so Claire was a bit prescient in this one. She talked about a potential antidote for a poison, um, a particular poison from a mushroom that um, three months later after that story was in the news because it was implicated in a suspected poisonings in Lee and Gather in Victoria. Can you, either of you, tell me the name of the mushroom? Oh, it's the death cap. That is correct, Stu. Points to Stu. <laughs> Finally, we've got a point on the board. Yes, Amanita phalloides. Uh, yes, so there was a study published uh, back in May that um, basically, like I said, an antidote to the death cap mushroom poisoning. Maybe a bit too, not in development or available enough to uh, help in the case in Leangatha where no. I think three people mm. have died as a result of that, and someone is up on murder charges. Mm. Okay, um, let's find some other newsy stories. Okay, so I spoke to, in June, I spoke to Dr. Ellie Sanson for the Desert Fireball Network in WA, um, but about a meteor that was seen not in WA, but another part of Australia. What part of Australia had a spectacular meteor fireball in, uh, in June 2023, May and June? I'm, I'm, Are we both just drawing blank? Yeah, I'm trying to think. 
I vaguely remember, but I can't remember. It wasn't in Melbourne, so it was, was it in Adelaide? No, I'm sorry. It was far north Queensland. Sorry, Queensland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the point. I'll give you the point. You start to say Queensland. Yeah, um, yes. and, and you know, Queensland. like if I had to choose an area that wasn't Western Australia, I probably mm. should have chosen Queensland because it's the next biggest it's area. Big, yeah. It's got more chance. More chance. Yeah. I think yeah, so. I think it was actually May that it was seen. It's basically across a large part of the top end. Um, a lot of people were hunting for the actual meteorite, and this is what the Desert Fireball Network, even though it's named that because mm. it's based in WA, they searched for meteorites that had come down in the, the Western Desert. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the Desert Fireball because they go out and drink um, cinnamon-flavoured whiskey in the middle of the desert. No, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't that one. Okay. I guess, look, it's got to keep hydrated. Different network. <laughs> look, it is easier to find rocks, I guess, in the desert than maybe in the in the rainforest. But you know, the point of the network is that they they track sightings, they try and work out the trajectory of the meteors, to try and where cricket where they might have landed. Um, in this case, a lot of citizen scientists are also involved in awesome. um, yeah in trying to find the meteorite, but they have called off the search. I found a news article from August where they decided to give up the uh, the search. So that's a bit disappointing. Is that because they suspect it may have just burned up and there's nothing left of it, or they're just I not think they resource could, they to just, continue. Yeah, no resource to continue. Realize it was yeah. not they were not, weren't getting anywhere. Hmm. Okay, let's let's try something a bit different. Um, what have we got? Um, all right. So in July, Claire gave us a story about what shouldn't go down the the drain. What you shouldn't put down the drain. So. I want to say of the following, which can't you flush or send down the drain? So fats and oils, uh, leftover paint, flushable wipes, bamboo nappy liners, or cat poo. Well, I'm thinking a lot of them you probably shouldn't, but... (laughs) I was going to say just why not just be safe and not flush any of those things down the toilet. But certainly flushable wipes is like a big thing that, you know, has, has come up in the news as something that we actually shouldn't be flushing down the toilet. Um, so I'm going to say that. Of of those things that you can, I would say maybe cat poo might be the only one that you might. Well, thank- So the question was what we can or what, what we can't? What you can't, what you can't. Oh, yeah, um, I'm going to say. It was a trick yeah. question. It was a trick question. You, you can't flush any of those. Uh, okay. You're not even cat poo. You're not allowed to flush that down the toilet. Okay. Um, among other things, it uh, can spread toxoplasmosis infections. Of yeah, because I, I, was, I was thinking like it would be, you know, infections and things. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how we're doing on the points. I'm not really keeping score. So uh, I, think we're, I think we're one all so far. Yeah, yeah, basically. And I think we were both sort of just like, mm, none of them. So <laughs> did we both get a point? <laughs> so we're still equal. Okay, well, here's another one for We're you. We're equals. Um, so back in May, um, I spoke to uh, Julie McInnes about a new conservation foundation that's been set up to support research on which subantarctic island. So I want you to think about what island that may be in a subantarctic that an Australian research organisation may have been established for. I. I remember searching for an image of this island and I cannot for the life of me remember its name. Um, and ah, oh, it's, it's some, it's some English guy's name. Let's be honest. I've, <laughs> I've no idea. Kat, you yeah, want to give us a guess? 
Uh, no, I, I read about it as well this year, and um, I cannot think of the name off the top of my head. Look, you're going to kick yourselves. It's Macquarie Island. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I should some say, English guy. Yeah, I should <laughs> say by sub-Antarctic, or Scottish perhaps, I should say by um, by uh, sub-Antarctic we mean not like below the Antarctic, because obviously Antarctic is, is kind of at the bottom <laughs> of the world in most conventional maps, but yeah, less latitude sort of not quite at the Antarctic level. Yeah, so clarify that. But yes, um, Macquarie Island has a lot of unique flora and fauna and this uh, new organisation is set up to raise money for conservation efforts, but also research into conservation of this of this particular island. Okay, well, here's something that I've talked about a few times this year. Um, so no pressure. So, yeah, no pressure. But Is, is any- it physics? Is it physics? It's more specific than that. <laughs> Can anyone tell me what is LK99? I'm just thinking of like K9 from Doctor Who. Yeah, I'm just thinking of KTEL, as in <laughs> records you buy off the TV. Now, is it a is it a, a celestial object of some description? No, it's. I'll give you a clue. It is physics. Um, it is on Earth. It's related more to chemistry. It's the is is it the substance that they said was a was a room temperature superconductor? Bing 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 bing. That is the one. Yes, Stu. It is the purported room temperature superconductor, which mm. yes failed replication <laughs> tests. Um, even though, as uh, the name suggests, LK ninety nine LK ninety nine has been worked on since the year nineteen ninety nine. Um, the scientists involved were convinced it worked. It turns out that the effects that they saw were due to other, other like impurities in the material and and that sort of thing, not to any magical superconducting properties. Which is disappointing for people holding out hopes mm. for you know, superconducting. Yeah, it's so promising. It's it's a disappointing superpower which you can't do when anyone's watching. That's right. <laughs> Okay, look, um, I think I might close up with one final question and um, I'm sure you'll get this one, Kate, because I think you're on, on board for this particular story and it wasn't that long ago. But in, um, in December, uh, Claire told us about some new evidence being found for a protoplanet about the size of Mars that struck Earth <laughs> in its early years. I want to know, what was the name of this protoplanet? Well, I can answer it immediately, but... Um, <laughs> you want to give Stu a go? Stu a fighting yeah. chance? Uh, look, I was just going to say, was it Captain Planet? <laughs> Captain Planet protects That's a brilliant world, answer. Yeah. Uh, well, um, Kat, do you want to tell us what Bringer of, of worlds or creator of worlds, Thea. Yeah, that's right. Thea, yes. Um A.K.A. Claire's baby. That's right. Claire's um, lovely baby daughter is also called Thea. But yes, Thea was this um, this large object that struck the Earth back in its early days. Um, and the collision was so big that it blew up a chunk of the Earth to make the moon. And that's where that came from. And now some leftover remnants of Thea have been... Well, there are some, some big chunks within the Earth that are believed to be leftover remnants of Thea. So it is still with us. Uh, deep down inside the Ferrero Rocher. Still near our core. That's right, that's right. Okay, look, I think that's the end of my quiz. And from what I can see, I believe we've turned out pretty much even in our points. So congratulations to both of you. Um, your prizes will be in the in the mail. 
Um, Our price is knowledge, is it not? Your price is knowledge, indeed. And um, thank you for listening, and thank you to everyone else out there for listening. It has been a wonderful year, and look, uh, just always look forward to what the next year in science will bring for us. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.